0: Part 3, Section 2 of The Autobiography of Cockney Tom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas Cruz. The Autobiography of Cockney Tom by Thomas Bastard. Part 3, Section 2. About this time, another change took place in my history. Whilst I was at work one morning, I received a note from a friend, who was then a churchwarden of St. John's, informing me of a BA at a bank, which my friend thought would suit me better than shoemaking secure it at once said he or somebody else will be before you and take with you the letters you brought out with you from london i lost no time and was soon at the union bank not far from king william street and was introduced to the manager there what's your name said he cockney tom said i where do you come from london have you any letters as to character yes said i here they are sir one from my late clergyman one from the countess of cardigan one from bishop short's brothers and several others after carefully reading them over he said have you any one in adelaide you can refer me to yes sir i know mr Hawksgood at the treasury said i well said he, can you wait till i go out for a short time and when i return i will give you an answer i accordingly waited in a small room till he returned when i was again called into the manager's room what wages do you expect said he just what is usual replied i It is a position of great responsibility, said he. You will have to sleep on the premises, collect large sums of money, and do whatever you are told to do, either by myself or by the accountant. The salary will be a hundred and twenty pounds a year at first, which will be increased according to length of service. Do you think you could live and pay your way out of that? I have lived on much less than that, I said. Well, you may consider yourself engaged, said he, from this date. He introduced me to the accountant and teller and I was soon set to work with orders which were sent in from the country for collection. I soon shaped myself to my work. I went home after business hours and told my wife all about my good fortune, which made us happy and grateful. Well, it was a slice of luck, said my wife. I will call on my friends, Mr. Hawksgood and Mr. Churchwarden Delaney, and report, said I, and tender my thanks, and also my resignation of my engagement at the Bull, for it would be hardly consistent with my engagement at the bank during the day to be singing at a place of that description at night just do what you think would be right said my wife the next day whilst on my rounds collecting i called on my friend mr Hawksgood, and informed him what i had done ''I know all about it,'' said he. ''The manager is a very intimate friend of mine, and came to me respecting your character. And I popped in a word for you.'' ''Oh,'' said I, ''it's you, then, that I have to thank for my appointment in the bank.'' ''It's a pleasure,'' said he, ''to be able to assist anyone I think is deserving.'' I then informed my friend, Private Rollinson that I did not intend to do any more shoemaking. So, if he would like to take my shop, and the little business connected with it, he was welcome.'' ''I'll consider,'' said Rollinson. You know, said he, that I have a wife and family in England, and if I could manage to get them out, I would accept your offer at once. Think it over, said I, and if you make up your mind, I will help you all I can. I suppose, said Rowlandson, you will be above drinking with me now that you are connected with the bank. I wonder what you will be next. I was a little proud of my improved position, but i was not too proud to drink with private roland he promised to let me know his decision about the offer the next night which he did and said i have thought over the matter and accept your offer i have saved a little money and should have had much more had it not been for my long illness at the port so i should like to get my family out here as I think that my son George would get on better in Adelaide than in London. It was settled that his wife and family should come out. The passage money was paid, and Rollinson took my business, and all went well for several months. When Rowlandson received a letter from his wife saying that they were about to sail for Adelaide, he came to me and reported the fact. Keep steady, old boy, said I, and it will be all right by the time they arrive. When they did, Rowlandson donned himself in full military uniform, looking for all the world like a lieutenant, and such was the effect of his disguise, that his family scarcely knew him. Some time after this a circumstance occurred, which was the cause of great unhappiness in my family. It should be remembered that I had some Roman Catholic friends in Melbourne, who had been very kind to me whilst I was there, and I had some in Adelaide also, and amongst them was a watchmaker, a man of good moral character who persuaded me to go with him to hear Bishop Murphy preach. I went, and was very much struck with the Christian charity and goodwill to all men enforced in his discourse. Instead of speaking against this or that denomination, the bishop spoke rather in favor of every religion being good, and calculated to make bad men better. I remembered my pledge to my Melbourne friends, and thought much over it. Shortly after this, I was introduced to the Reverend Father Smith, whom I found to be the very essence of goodness in everything, and had several private interviews with him on matters of faith and a number of other things hard to be understood. But Father Smith soon explained them all by telling me there were many things practiced in the Church of Rome which were not necessary to a man's salvation. He then introduced me to good Bishop Murphy, who listened kindly to my history and was pleased to accept me as a member of the Catholic Church. I tried to keep all this to myself, but it was soon spread abroad, and my wife felt very much hurt at what I had done, and declared that she would sooner have her arm cut off than desert the church in which she had been baptized. Many cross words ensued, and my wife strongly objected to our children being taken from the Protestant and sent to the Catholic school, and I, for the sake of peace, yielded. After a time, I was summoned by the bishop and told it was my duty to join the choir i explained that i was but a poor scholar and did not understand english much less latin but he introduced me to father maurice lencioni a good man who held the office of choir singing master and confessor and whose duty it was to visit the sick bury the dead and bring young people together for merit everybody liked this priest myself particularly he was an italian a splendid musician and gifted with a good voice he undertook to teach me the latin service and he had his work to do it was a long time before i could manage it but at length i succeeded fairly well but never became a one about this time the bishop announced his intention to raise money to build a cathedral and collections were made and the money came in from all parts of the colony a building committee was formed i was selected a member my duty was to watch the work attend the meetings and collect as much money as i could and every sunday i might have been seen Going about west adelaide with a collection book receiving from the poor catholics their small gifts of three d six d and one s per week and they gave most freely according to their means just about this time the good bishop was taken ill he had an account at the union bank and on one occasion meeting me there he offered me the collectorship of all the town rents belonging to the church which i accepted with thanks the bishop grew worse and eventually died and was buried in the unfinished cathedral the funeral was the largest ever known in adelaide and was attended by all classes and denominations afterwards when the cathedral was partially finished and opened i was requested to join the choir and consenting was appointed receiver of all monies taken at the doors by the collector which money i had to pay into the bank every monday to the credit of the cathedral fund about this time that great singer madame anna bishop paid a visit to adelaide accompanied by mr george loder an accomplished musician they took apartments at the york hotel kept by a mrs bray who conceived such a liking for madame that in her will she bequeathed her a legacy of one thousand pounds besides making her other presents madame required a local agent and mrs bray knowing me recommended me to her I was accordingly sent for and engaged to make myself generally useful, to sing when required and to act as money taker at her concerts, and White's rooms were fixed upon and engaged by me from the proprietor, Mr. G.O. White, on behalf of Madame. The bank authorities allowed me the privilege of taking the engagement of White's rooms so long as I did not neglect my duty at the bank, and by such engagements I was brought into the society of all the leading artists who visited Adelaide. Perhaps it would not be out of place to mention some of their names, viz. Madame Cayley, fellow pupil of Jenny Lind, Richard W. Kohler, Miska Hanser, the greatest violinist that ever came to Australia, Lindley Norman, Richard White, Madame Carandini, Walter Sherwin, Madame Goddard, the premier pianist, W. Montgomery, B. Fairclough, and many others. When I had engaged... At the Union Bank for about three years and a half, the manager, a widower, got married, which made me more work than I could well do, my salary besides not being proportionately increased, as was promised when I entered on my engagement with the bank. I began to be discontented and thought that I would look out for something better than remaining in the BA. About this time, a new bank was projected by a gentleman from Melbourne as it was generally believed that, as there were, at that time, only three banks in Adelaide, and the colony was steadily progressing, that there was room for one more, and so it was decided to establish another. Adelaide can now boast of seven. I thought I would try for a BA in the new bank, which has to be called the National. I made application and was engaged. There was only half the amount of work to be done, as at my old BA at the Union Bank, with a much better salary i held a position of bank messenger and collector there for seven years and a half the bank prospered and the average collection for the last three years of my service amounted to no less than two hundred thousand pounds per annum and i am glad to be able to say that i never made a mistake or lost any of the bank's money one or two things worthy of mention occurred whilst I was in the banks, that might perhaps serve as a lesson to bank clerks, should any of them perchance read this narrative. On one occasion, the teller was in such a mighty hurry to get to the races that in locking up the cash, he forgot the exchanges on other banks. After they were all gone, my duty was to go round to see that everything was all right, when, lo and behold, I found the exchanges left in the drawer, instead of being locked up in the safe. There was only the trifling sum of seven thousand pounds in banknotes, and it was a good thing for the bank that I was not a Kelly. I locked them up, engaged a cab, drove to the race course, found the teller, brought him back, and showed him what he had done, or rather what he had not done. He locked up the money safely, thanked me, and begged that I would not tell the manager. Upon another occasion, 500 pounds were overlooked, and left under the counter. I slept with the money under my head that night, and thought what a rich pillow I had and what a temptation it would have been to many who not only had money on the brain but the love of it in their hearts i gave it up the next morning and was glad to be rid of it just about this time one of my daughters was living with a family who were spending their summer months at brighton for the pleasure of sea bathing whilst indulging with them in this luxury she got out of her depth and had it not been for two gentlemen who happened to be passing she would doubtless have been drowned They rushed in with their clothes on and brought her out nearly dead. When I heard of it, I was very much concerned, and called on the gentlemen and thanked them for saving my daughter's life. I wondered how I could show my gratitude, and the idea that struck me was that, though there were baths at hand, there was no swimming master. I will apply to the corporation to be allowed to teach swimming, thought I, and did so, and the privilege was granted to me and for two years I taught every Saturday afternoon, without fee or reward. Many availed themselves of this opportunity and became good swimmers. About this time, the Adelaide city baths were advertised by the corporation to be let by tender, and as I began to want a change, for I felt that I had been in the National Bank long enough once more, so I tendered for the lease, which was granted me, not alone because my tender was the highest, but that i was thought to be the best man out of the four that tendered i consequently sent in my resignation to the bank and in return they made me a present of twenty-one pounds as an acknowledgment for past services they also gave me a testimonial as a character which I am proud of to this day. It was in February 1866 that I took charge of the baths, and I flattered myself that I would make my fortune out of the speculation. But at the end of the year, I found myself on the wrong side of the ledger. I then had to turn my attention once more to professional pursuits, and accordingly I engaged to serve Mr. George Coppin as money-taker at the Town Hall and Theatre Royal. And I was also engaged with the South Australian Jockey Club in the same capacity for ten years after this time a friend of mine suggested the advisability of adding turkish baths to my business in adelaide believing that it would pay well as a great number of people were compelled to go to melbourne and sydney to obtain them i pondered over the matter and also called on a gentleman that had been to sydney for that purpose and who had received much good therefrom now as i knew very little of turkish baths i consulted my old friends mr sweetwilliam who was then mayor of adelaide and mr johns who was then a large tradesman and who since then has been a corporation councillor and a member of parliament a meeting was called at which the mayor took the chair and turkish baths were decided on the first thing to be then done was to get the opinion of the medical faculty and a promise of their support and i undertook that work and succeeded my next step was to see what money i could raise towards building them and succeeded in this also beyond my most sanguine expectations i then employed an architect to prepare plans and wrote to the corporation explaining everything and offered to put four hundred pounds toward the building if they would supplement rather more than three hundred fifty pounds was subscribed by friends of the movement to whom i gave subscribers tickets representing the full value of their subscriptions and the balance i made up myself After the matter was discussed in the city council, it was passed, after considerable opposition, by a majority of three, and tenders were called for the building, and the work commenced, and it was eventually opened to the public by the mayor and councillors of the city. From that time to the present, 1881, the Turkish baths have been a blessing to many, especially to the afflicted, and numerous testimonials have been given to me for establishing this institution in the city of Adelaide. At this time, the then-town clerk received a letter from a man calling himself Edward Baldiston, stated to be manager of the Turkish Baths in Melbourne, giving a long account of his experience at Constantinople and other places in Turkey, and applying for the management of the Adelaide Turkish Baths. The town clerk sent his letter on to me, and advised me to answer it. I did so, but was sorry for it afterwards. The Baths in Melbourne were burnt down, shortly after that, and Baldesson found his way to Adelaide, and presenting himself and wife at the baths, gave me to understand that he had come over at the request of several gentlemen to superintend the Turkish baths department. I disabused his mind at once, and told him that no one had any power to engage him but myself. Whereupon he said, I'll see about that, He called on several of my friends and made out that I knew nothing about keeping baths and in every possible way tried to injure my character. He did not, however, succeed as well as he expected. The next thing he did was to prepare a document for me to sign, appointing him shampooer, and came down to the baths with this document, while no one but the boy was about. When he saw me, he said, Will you sign this? No, replied I. I have nothing to do with you he thereupon struck me a blow in the face which knocked me into the water i called for help and my wife came to my assistance and found baldiston who was a powerful young man trying to hold me under water you wretch said she you are trying to drown my husband yes he answered and i'll drown you too and the next moment in she was sent likewise hearing the noise some passers-by came in to whom he declared that the swimming master and his wife had been trying to drown him and in the struggle We had all slipped into the water together. I went for a policeman and gave him in charge, but the policeman refused to take the charge on account of not having seen the disturbance. And before I could change my clothes and get to the police court, Baldiston had anticipated my action, and taken out a summons against me for an assault with intent to drown. All that I could then do was to issue a summons against the bad man and employ a respectable solicitor named Brooks. When the time arrived for the case to be heard, Mr. Brooks could not attend, so I secured the services of Mr. Bundy, a very able lawyer, and now a QC Baldiston engaged Mr. Downer, who, of course, came down like a thousand of bricks on me for the alleged attempt to drown his most respectable client. My solicitor, however, gave a very different version of the whole affair, and called my wife, who declared that Baldiston was holding me under the water when she came to my assistance and that before she knew where she was, she found herself floundering about in the bath, with Baldiston threatening to drown her and her husband into the bargain. Roars of laughter came from everybody in the court. My daughter also gave evidence that she saw her father and mother both in the water at the same time. More laughter. Mr. Bedome and the commissioner gave their joint opinion that all parties were in the wrong, and inflicted a fine of five shillings on each, with costs, and I and my family and friends left the court disgusted, but nevertheless felt glad to be rid of a man who had taken his maker's name in witness to a most deliberate falsehood. A few days later, after that, I received a letter from Baldiston, in which he confessed that what he had stated in court was untrue, and begged me to forgive him and forget the past, and that he would endeavor to make amends to me by working the baths into such a state of perfection that i would be sure to make my fortune out of them in a very short time all my eye and betty martin thought i i will have no more truck with you but alas i did have and that in such a manner as will astonish the reader about this time an important undertaking in which i had taken a great interest and which was known as the torrens dam was completed and i had obtained permission from the mayor to put boats on the river as i reckoned it a speculation that would pay well so i called on a friend who was blessed with plenty of money whom we will call mr grey this gentleman was then reading for the law and i mention this because as one of our colonial youths he won golden opinions for his talent and industry and did great things to advance south australia he also represented our fair city in parliament and raised himself to the high position of attorney-general what's your pleasure he asked well sir i replied i have a notion that money can be made on the river torrens by boating and i want some one to go in with me and supply the necessary means and i myself will undertake to find the skill and labor to make it in paying concern how much money do you want to begin with asked he besides what i can raise i want fifty pounds i replied well here is my check for fifty pounds said he Draw out an agreement, and we will sign it at once. I will trust to your proper management of the whole thing. It was soon settled, and I took out a waterman's license, purchased three boats to begin with, and had them on the river the next day. Boating, then, was all the rage, and my fleet amounted in a short time to ten crafts. I formed rowing clubs, and my boats were well patronized. At one time, there were no less than forty boats on the river, and it gave quite a new appearance to the city. But it proved too good to last for a sudden change took place that nearly ruined me bad weather set in as late as october and the floods came down from the hills carrying everything before them at last the water got underneath the dam and down it went and everything was carried away in the flood and amongst other things all my boats at this disaster i was greatly discouraged seeing that all my hopes and expectations respecting the dam were suddenly dashed to the ground but my friend mr grey took the matter quite easily and endeavoured to cheer me up shortly after this the duke of edinburgh arrived in the colony on a second visit to adelaide and about the same time the new governor sir james ferguson arrived now at this stage of my history something connected with the celebrated baldiston occurred which is worth mentioning through the interest of the late governor daly he had been appointed valet de chambre to the prince, and had been recommended to him as a smart man. And in a very short space of time, Baldiston sustained his reputation in this respect. For whilst the duke was staying at government house, he wantonly robbed him of his linen and other valuables. And not being content with that, he forthwith fell in love with the governor's property, and not only stole his plate, but had the audacity to appropriate the governor's undergarments. Housebreaking at this time was quite common in Adelaide, so much so that the government had to increase the police force. But, with all their sagacity, the police could not detect the thief. End of Part 3, Section 2. Quoting by John Thomas Coos. www.johncoos.com